G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but be incredibly grateful if you could pop up a podcast or a cast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we would really appreciate a few moments of your time if you could do that for us. Joining um, Brian and myself in our virtual studio today, we're going to talk to Dr. David Beeson, one of our final year emotionally critical care residents here at the RVC. Um, and uh, Dave's got a, a variety of interests, which is uh, which is quite interesting, probably focus and cardiology and amongst other things. But probably what we're going to speak to him today about is um, the management of urethral obstruction in male cats. So welcome, Dave, and thanks for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me back. It's been a little while. It has. There'll probably be some some comments that people thought this is has its uh, podcast has stopped for a bit, um, but we uh, we had just a, a break over over winter, um, and uh, and minor we're, pandemic, and we're back, we're back. Uh, so um, uh, so David, so I, I suppose we're gonna gonna focus on um, you published something recently with uh, an. Uh, an Karen, uh, David Church, David Broadbelt, and Dan O'Neill. So, uh, a few people at the at the RVC and associated with Vet Compass and Big Data, looking at um, urethral obstruction. So, so could I maybe ask at the start, like, why you wanted to look at this? So, I think this is um, something we're all fairly commonly exposed to in general practice, and um, a condition that has quite. Uh, substantial morbidity and mortality to a number of our patients and I think one of my frustrations with the condition is that um, it's so heterogeneous and you don't really know how to um, best educate clients um, for for their patients and um, I, I think for me I was just really interested in trying to figure out what are we currently doing so that we could try and figure out how best to try and improve our quality of care to patients. And um, and so using the Vet Compass data, so this is a, a, a number of um, vet practices in the in the UK that um, feed into into this data. Was that something that attracted you to look at big data? Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I looked a little while ago just to to see how the Vet Compass program was going. And essentially, back in February, there were already almost 120 published studies on it. And it's this at the time of me um, writing this project and doing the research for it. Um, there was a data bank of over sort of 20 million animals that subscribe into the Vet Compass program, uh, kind of factoring in about 1800 practices in the UK. And I think when you look at human medicine and the the numbers that they have in their studies, and then you look at what we have, I think it's safe to say that in general, the the studies that we have have a much smaller population. And although I think we have to be very specific about the questions we're asking of big data, I think it can be very, very useful uh, to try and from an epidemiological standpoint, just to see what we're doing um, and the kind of the overarching questions for these patients. So could I ask you, Dave, so what, what did you what did you find? And maybe you want to answer this at the end, but what did you ask and, and maybe what you wanted to 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 ask as well but maybe you'll get to what you wanted to ask um 
at the end. Sure. So I, I guess just going from the start, this was a, a project that I started data collecting um, during my internship a few years ago. Um, and so the way that Compass works is that um, you'll have a, a certain year group that you want to have a look at. And so the data set that I was looking at was was cats that presented to primary care practice uh, between 2016 and 2017. Um, and so this ended up uh, having a kind of a, a background data population of around 260. 60,000 cats that presented to the vet compass practices in that time frame um, and I it's essentially like a database so you, you have to have um, appropriate search terms and had a um, essentially around 10,000 cases that were highlighted uh, that I had to go through and manually check um, and ended up having just around um, when we kind of excluded uh, patients that could have been doubled up around 1100 cats um, and so I think the the main findings really from the study were discussing things like recurrence rates of, of uh, urethral obstruction, uh, euthanasia and mortality rates, and, and then a couple of the therapeutic strategies. So I'm happy to go through each of those um, if that would be useful. It sounds great. Thank you. Real. So I, I guess probably the the data can be quite complex uh, to, to go through. And um, this is an open access paper if people want to check it out. But essentially, probably the most useful part of the, uh, of the paper is uh, one of the figures that's in there. And that's really just a big flow chart. And it gets a little bit complicated just looking at it. So kind of breaking that down, essentially what we looked at was each of the the, the points um, of, of these these patients progressing through practice so essentially what happened on presentation were there attempts to try and de-obstruct these patients or were they just euthanized um, and then kind of following up these individual patients at uh, 48 hours post catheter removal a week three weeks four weeks several months a year and then ongoing and because i was doing this data collection in 2020 um, essentially the the data silo it was those patients that presented in 2016 to 2017 and we were collecting up to real time 2020, so a follow up period of about three to four years, depending on, on whereabouts in, in that 2016 year they presented. So really, from a recurrence perspective, I, I guess actually taking a step back, if, if we look at that initial presentation, we had about um, 1100 cats, as, a, as I said, um, that, that presented and were diagnosed with urethral obstruction. Um, and so one of the, the big things that we noted was that there are a substantial number of patients that were kind of put to sleep on presentation. So about 12.5% were, were put to sleep on presentation with no prior history of urethral obstruction. Um, and and if we factor in those that did have a, a, a history of urethral obstruction, it's around 15% of cats. So uh, in this study, it was about 170 out of the 1,100 cats were just kind of put to sleep. Um, and I guess what we can't really say from this data um, is is the motives for that. Was this client driven? Was it patient driven or was it vet driven? And I, I think that's one of the really important things I've learned from this is that I think we're, we're very focused on publishing studies and, and getting stuff out there. But I think we always have to kind of factor in that clinician experience in terms of how these patients actually do. Um, because I think if you look at some of these retrospective studies, you see really high mortality rates like this. You could say, OK, well, well. 15% of cats died within the first 48 hours, but actually most of those were euthanized. And I guess what we don't know is why were these patients euthanized? 
So if we then uh, kind of follow this diagram down, essentially we can then look at those patients that were uh, sedated or anaesthetized uh, that had bladder expression um, as, a, as a potential uh, therapeutic option. And then we work down the, the chart in terms of those that had catheters placed. So obviously the, the gold standard for urethral obstruction would be to place a urethral catheter. And what we don't know at the moment is, is the optimal duration of leaving that catheter in or, or whether we actually do need to leave that catheter in, especially in patients where there may be some financial constraints. So that was particularly one of the things that we looked at was 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 there a difference in those patients that ended up having an indwelling catheter versus what we called an in and out catheter? And I think for me, that's one of the, the really substantial things that I had certainly from my first job was we had we weren't a hospital, so we didn't have patients. Um, sorry, we didn't have that monitoring overnight. So for me, if I had a urethral obstruction patient, we did want to see if we could actually try and manage it as an outpatient initially. And, and so like a, either a cystocentesis or an in and out catheter flush everything out and then um, see whether they, they come back. And so what we noted was that actually within if you looked at those patients within about 48 hours, um, following catheter removal so whether that was indwelling or, or leaving uh, sorry going in and out there wasn't a huge difference in the risk of recurrence there was a difference and so we know that noted that um, around 10 percent of cats that had an indwelling urinary catheter versus 15 percent um, that had it in and out um, recurred uh, so there, there's a slight benefit there um, in terms of the epidemiology for it um, but what we don't know is is whether or not that it would be replicated in another population sorry sorry just to interrupt that so, so um just to clarify this you're saying that um of cats that had an in and out catheter or a urinary catheter put in place that you found there wasn't a significant difference between re-obstructing is 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 that right but you but there's no um i suppose stratification of of why they had an obstruction uh, as yeah, in whether sure. yeah. stones or urethral plug yeah, exactly. Sorry. So just to clarify, there was a statistically significant difference uh, between those groups. But I think if we're thinking about a clinically significant difference, 14.8% recurrence versus 10.1% recurrence is a fairly low difference, I guess. But uh, absolutely, yes, I don't we don't have the data to, to say how many of those actually have sort of stones and, and things like that. Thank you. Brill. So I guess um, what we tried to do was break it down into to time points that would be clinically relevant. And um, there was a lot of debate when we were kind of doing our data collection in terms of what defines a, a urethral obstruction episode versus urethral obstruction um, or deobstruction attempts. And for me, if I have a cat that I, I catheterize and then within 48 hours, it, it's coming back because it's blocked again. For me, that's still the same episode. Um, and I think that's especially when we're talking about some of the, the management strategies later on with regards to things like perineal urethrostomy. I think it's really important to recognize that these are salvage procedures um and actually if a patient presents and then just within a couple of days they, they've presented back uh, or represented to you um obstructed we may not necessarily need to rush to, to doing these salvage procedures so what we found actually was that the highest rate of recurrence in the, in this population was within about 48 hours of, of elective catheter removal so this was a third of the total recurrence rate. So if we're following these patients for three to four years, actually a third of those patients that were going to recur 
recurred within that first 48 hours. And actually, we then followed these patients up that had to have repeat catheterization. Again, it gets a bit complicated just saying the numbers, and that's why the diagram is quite useful. But those that essentially re-blocked within 48 hours, 70% of them never had another problem, and they were they were fine throughout the rest of the study. Now, obviously, that does mean that we had about 30% that, that didn't do, do very well. Um, but for me, that's one of the big takeaways of the paper is that actually if they re reblock or they represent to you don't necessarily say like this is we need to have serious chats about where we're going because a substantial the majority of these patients did absolutely fine so so then if we move down a little bit further um the data i guess it is um it, it is a little bit more complicated as we go forward but essentially to summarize we we if we looked at the overall recurrence rate, it was around one in three cats. And I think that's fairly similar to what's been published out there before. It's a bit variable in, in the literature, anywhere ranging from 10 to 40 percent. But one of the big issues that we have when we're looking at this these, these different studies is that there's different criteria for follow up. And are we looking at very, very short term follow up versus long term? And I think one of the strengths of this paper is that we kind of have both there we have it via t uh, each time point of recurrence rate at 48 hours one week one to four weeks three months 12 months and then onwards so that's kind of the main thing really from my perspective from a recurrence rate thanks dave <clears throat> the um so you, I, I suppose that this is what so I suppose there's lots of lots of questions, but part of when you're uh, looking at this uh, large data set, so what was the the idea with the timeline sort of cut off? So I can understand like within 48 hours, but what why pick um, those sort of months time period? Yeah, I, I think what we wanted to do was just to try and have. A little bit is arbitrary, but I guess what we wanted to do is try and define whether there are patients that have repeated episodes that are separate so can we buy that a patient that obstructs and then comes back within a week is part of the same episode i think so uh, if we think about the underlying pathophysiology and sort of urethral spasm urethral inflammation etc um, versus after sort of three months well we would hope that some of that inflammation or the majority of that has resolved and therefore this is something where it's almost a, a new presentation and i think especially for a disease process that does have a high recurrence rate of one in three cats what we what I think about it is essentially that for some patients, yes, we do have to think about those salvage procedures, especially if uh, if there are cost concerns, because, I mean, I, I obviously a little bit out of touch in terms of costs in general practice at the moment. But if it's going to be several thousand pounds each time these patients pre present, but actually a perineal urethrostomy is probably the, the cost of one or two of those episodes put together. Well, certainly for some patients where they do have these cost constraints. It's kind of this this balance of, of risk, but maybe it is more appropriate to to go ahead with those PUs. Um, obviously not my area of expertise, though. And and did you find, or did you manage to look? I suppose we'll come to sort of what treatments were employed, like for that the obstruction um, period. But did you have a look with discharge? Whether any animals were on 
um, any medications and if anything was significant related to what medications they were, were placed on. I suppose I'm trying to think about um, whether non-steroidals or yeah, gabapentin absolutely. or etc. Sure. So I guess that's probably the big chunk of, of this paper, actually. And, and I think to, to start off, and, and certainly this is something that we've spoken about off air before, but um, I, I do think we have to be fairly cautious interpreting um, the, the data that we've got. And I think cautious in the questions that we're asking. The, the the data itself can be incredibly useful, but I think you have to be very cautious about the questions that we're trying to answer with the data that we've got. But from an epidemiological standpoint, we can sort of say, okay, we can describe what happened to these patients. So if we're thinking about the therapeutics, well, there's a substantial variation in in uh, therapeutics given to this patient population. And I think one of the things to also comment on is with regards to how how relevant is this to, to referral versus how relevant is it to general practice? And I think if you look at some of the most recent literature that has been published on, on urethral obstruction, it obviously focuses on some of those more sick patients. So with, with severe hyperkalemia, there's a paper that came out at the end of last year. Um, and just even comparing the medications that were used during hospitalization um, between that study and, and my study, you could see that there was a substantial difference in the medications that were being given. Um, so I think overall, our patient population was probably less sick. But in terms of the, um, the, the therapeutics that were used from an outpatient basis, I guess we can try and separate those into analgesic agents versus those that are uh, kind of designed to try and address some of the, the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms of urethral obstruction. So if we focus on the analgesia, um, it was it was very common for buprenorphine to be administered to these patients. Around uh, two thirds of patients had buprenorphine and around two thirds had meloxicam as well. Um, interestingly, for, for me, when we we talk about the the intra um, hospital administration of medications. Only one patient had a sacrococcygeal epidural, and that's something that's a kind of a little bee in my bonnet. I think it's a really nice technique that's fairly risk free that that we could try and start employing a little bit more. But essentially, we because of the uh, the the data that we have, I think. Uh, we were being very cautious in terms of looking for statistical significant differences between medications. Um, but certainly all I can say is that um, there was an equal number of patients pretty much that were having buprenorphine and meloxicam. And really what we use this paper for is to kind of describe uh, what is being done. And then in the discussion, we discuss some of the rationale but behind these medications and I guess one of the things that we talk about and, and we're talking to the, the students about on clinics is that um, there are risk factors associated with non-steroidal administration in these patients and we know that NSAIDs are not recommended for the concurrent condition in people so interstitial cystitis they actually recommend a very similar thing to what you will have heard of for, for feline lower urinary tract disease so this multimodal approach maybe not necessarily the environmental modification in people but um, it is to do with that sort of um, the behavior modification um, modification, and, and then making sure that we are being multimodal with that. So for us in the paper, we do comment on the fact that there's no real significant difference in terms of what's being, uh, or we didn't, I guess we didn't assess the significance, but there's no difference in the number of patients that were having buprenorphine versus meloxicam. And actually, I guess one thing would be really interesting to know in terms of recurrence rates with the, these patients, but from a physiologic standpoint, 
we can't really necessarily say that there's a, a benefit over um, buprenorphine by using meloxicam. And, and I think there are risks associated with these. The other really big one that we, we focus on quite heavily is the use of antibiotics. And I, I think that's something that is definitely coming to light in, in the literature at the moment. There's a really nice um, paper uh, by Chris Scudder um, that was released recently in JSAP, um, essentially looking at the use of antibiotics prior to referral. Um, and for, for me, this was one of the big take homes from the paper. So for a condition where we, we know that cats are essentially very resistant to urinary tract infections because of their inherent defense mechanisms, they have very acidic urine, generally very concentrated urine. Um, it, it's a condition that we don't really see in, in cats. We don't typically see that bacterial cystitis. It's normally a sterile environment. Um, but actually about 60% of these patients uh, that presented to general practice had antibiotics, um, most commonly amoxiclav. But then we also see some of the, the bigger gun. I'm using saying that in quotation marks, which obviously you can't see, but things like convenience, so cefavicin, Enrofloxacin, Marbafloxacin, Pradofloxacin, um, Metronidazole, all these different drugs were being administered to these patients. And what we know, I, I guess, for, from the literature perspective is that there, there are prospective studies on this that showed that essentially um, in, in the, the biggest study I'm aware of, zero out of 30 cats um, that presented with urethral obstruction and had urine culture performed had bacteria there. So it for us, it's it's a fairly sterile um, condition, um, and so this is a, a big area where I, I just think one, it, it's essentially wasting client money, but also we, we don't really know that there's going to be a benefit. And this isn't something that was actually um, published in the paper. And I, I guess, again, I've been sort of rattling on about how we have to be careful about what stats and things we, we do. But looking at the patient population group, so um, just kind of post hoc, what I did decide to have a look at was patients that um, had survived to 48 hours post catheter removal. Um, I looked at whether or not they had antibiotics and whether that had a significant difference in recurrence or mortality. And the fact is that there was no significant difference in recurrence or mortality. And I kind of regret not putting that in the paper, because if you then take that in combination of, OK, well, 60 percent got antibiotics, but there's no difference in recurrence or mortality. That's essentially 60 percent that most likely had antibiotics when they didn't need it. Um, now, the, the caveat to that is that certainly there are patients that do end up having back to urine. Um, often these are the patients have had multiple catheterizations and it's more of an iatrogenic bacteria. Um, but that was a big thing for me in the paper that really highlighted that this is a target that we should be looking at in terms of our antibiotic usage. I don't think I'm the first person to, to say on this podcast that I think we need to be really careful with the antibiotics we're using in, in our patients, but especially if there's not necessarily a physiologic um, reasoning for it. Can, can I ask AC, um with regard to that antibiotics, is it there's you, you have some comments about um, how many cases had urine culture performed, but were you able to sort of ascertain whether that like, urine was looked at in house, yeah. whether people made made a, a judgment based on giving antibiotics based on 
on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, around 23% had um, urine culture performed. Unfortunately, just because of the nature of the data, this wasn't always recorded um, in terms of the, the follow-up. So I don't, I, I couldn't really comment on how many of those had positive culture. Um, but in terms of the the uh, diagnostics that were being used um, on, on presentation, well, actually about 50% had a sediment exam performed, whether that was internal um, or external. Um, and, and so we know that, I guess, there are a, a number of, of different conditions that can lead to urethral obstruction, things like uh, urethral plugs uh, that are, are quite common. These are uh, kind of a collection or organization of, of mucus and crystalline matrix that uh, maybe we would be able to pick up so, some uh, clues on our sediment exam. So. Yeah, 50% had a sediment in exam performed, I think, in terms of guiding our diagnostics. If we could try and get that closer to 100%, I think that would potentially help with regards to uh, the, these patients. So looking to see if there's anything that, that we can try and manage. So are there certain crystals that we can try and do something about? And apart from sort of antibiotics, what was what was surprising to you about, say, other drugs that were used um, with these patients? Absolutely. So there were a, a number of other um, therapeutics that, that were used um and and so just going through a couple of them um obviously one of the most common ones that was used was prazosin and i i think this is a very controversial topic within the literature um and i know we've discussed this again sort of off air but essentially uh, prazosin is a um a smooth muscle relaxant um, that works um, on, yeah sorry just on smooth muscle and what we know is that actually it's only the the very proximal third of the feline urethra that um, is comprised of smooth muscle so that's where this um, prazosin is going to work um, and the rest of that it, uh, that urethra is skeletal muscle and unfortunately where we most commonly see these obstructions is at the very distal urethra so not somewhere where this prazosin is, is going to work and there are are various side effects of prazosin administration so hypotension being one of the most common ones um, and so um, there are various studies out there looking at the use of prazosin it seems to be a drug that has received a lot of attention um, with papers saying that it makes no difference to one of the, the papers that was published at a very similar time saying essentially that it increases the risk of, of urethral obstruction and I think at the moment it's very difficult to make comments on it because this is a very heterogeneous condition and I'm sure there is a population of patients that benefit from prazosin um, but if we look at all of them overall essentially that again this wasn't necessarily in the paper uh, because we wanted to try and avoid uh, statistical analysis but looking separately um, what I can say is that in cats that survived 48 hours following catheter removal there was no difference in repeated catheterization rates of those that received prazosin so this was about 294 cats that received prazosin versus those that didn't um, and that's about 400 that survived to that point and it was a, a recurrence rate of around 21 to 25 percent respectively. Now that that, I think, was a very useful thing to, to look at. But the other useful thing to kind of highlight in this paper is other medications that were being used. And so, again, I, we can't necessarily comment on um, whether or not these are making a difference. We weren't intending to look at that. But I think it's really important to note some of these medications that are being used in practice can genuinely be detrimental to patients so around 10 percent of cats actually had oral diazepam now for those that aren't aware essentially 
IV diazepam, that, that's fine. It's, it's not a problem in our cats, but oral diazepam, for reasons that aren't particularly known to my understanding, we can see this idiosyncratic drug reaction where they can have acute fatal hepatic necrosis. Um, and so it's a, a, a drug that potentially for you could understand the reasoning behind it and that this will relax skeletal muscle and this is where we can see that obstruction but when given orally because of that enterohepatic uh, metabolism or first pass metabolism it can cause quite a severe hepatic injury and again this isn't something that um, happened enough in the paper to talk about um, but certainly during my data collection there were at least five patients um, that were noted to come back several days later um, icteric with acute hepatic failure essentially so I think that's one of the other things that we talked about in this paper in that um, again for cats where we know that there's going to be a substantial stress component to this giving medications where there's not a known benefit or the potential harm it is probably not necessarily frowned upon, but I think we should probably be trying to avoid it. That's that's great. Thank you, Dave. And I suppose that there's always going to be a, a, a smorgasbord of, of different medications that were given that some might be related to the treatment of that condition or for another reason that maybe you're not aware of looking at the mm. l- looking at the patient population. Was it was that quite hard to 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 clean up or find out? Were there some drugs that you thought I'm not I'm not quite sure whether this yeah. was related to this condition yeah there were a couple of of fairly random drugs in there um so for example um uh like furosemide was administered to four patients uh to try and induce diuresis um and i think for me that it doesn't necessarily make much sense um, because we know that these patients essentially get their own post-obstructive diuresis, but also uh, vitamin K was administered to, to a patient. And again, this is one patient out of 1,100 cats. Um, but there, I think one of the things uh, uh, I mentioned when I, I did this kind of talk for, for the QMH on my Friday morning seminar, um, I think we have to be we have to be looking at these medications and the risk benefit of it, especially when you factor in the rising costs of veteran care and, and what clients are expecting and, and the, the costs generally of living. If there are medications that don't necessarily have a benefit, I think we should probably be trying to avoid them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think um, they're jumping about a, a bit, Dave. I was just wondering, um, because you were looking at a urethral obstruction, was there, was there any sort of comment about um, anything to do with present presentation of what might have precipitated that obstructive episode I, I suppose i was just trying to think we're always um informed about behavior sort of aspects or multi-cat households or moving or things like that Is, w- w- did you look into that or do you think if you were going to look through thousands of uh, of these um uh, patients again that you'd like to look at that yeah I, I think there were a number of questions that i wanted to answer when i first started this data collection and i think one of the big things to note from this paper is all of the stuff that went on behind the scenes so when you when you um, you read this paper in the general veterinary internal medicine you just see the paper you don't necessarily see all of the work that went behind it and actually um dan o'neill um, who runs that compass has a very very thorough process in terms of designing these studies um, and looking at 
at what's realistic. Because I think when I first started this paper, I had kind of referral level questions in terms of what was the potassium and um, what were the ECG changes and all these things that I really wanted to answer. But whether or not these aren't looked for or whether it's just not recorded, there was inconsistency in terms of how prevalent this data was. So in terms of those additional questions, in terms of uh, what diets were they fed um, or what were there other cats in the household, I would have loved to have had this information, but it's just not fortunately it wasn't recorded at that time and it may be that our recording has gotten better since then um, and so certainly one of the kind of the goals would be at some point to try and repeat this paper um, I think I'm going to need a lot of time that I don't currently have to be able to do that um, but I would love to look at these things in the future and I think um, certainly things like diet when we comment on the paper about sort of urinalysis and crystals and how there may be some therapeutic strategies with with diet to reduce the 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 um the instance of, of the these episodes um i think it'd be really good to have the data to back that up as well I, yeah, but unfortunately yeah oh sorry no no, no i was just I, I suppose it's quite interesting as well isn't it because you talk about like you, when you'd like to have a look at what the ecg changes were or what the potassium was but i wonder whether you know whether you can sort of reverse extrapolate by looking at the number of patients that had calcium gluconate, which really wasn't that many, or glucose or, or neutral insulin um, or bicarb or, or, or other sort of medications associated with potentially um, supporting a hyperkalemic patient. So, so it's, that's quite interesting as well. Does that, ref I, I suppose, the other question for that is does that reflect the numbers of patients that had? high potassium or actually was that number a lot higher but these are the only ones that were treated and, and yeah. that would be quite interesting as well do we need to be a, as aggressive as we as yeah. we are in our um, management of, yeah. of, of of hyperkalemia um, and I, I think that's a really good point and I, th I think we obviously worry about it and I think we see a fairly skewed population um, even oddly through our first opinion service I feel like they, the cats that we get in just compared to the, the cats that I had in general practice I don't know what it is about the QMH I think maybe we attract the, these sick patients um, but essentially that is something that um, has really changed over the course of the last few years of my residency in terms of, of how I manage these patients because I think actually I didn't really necessarily understand um, the hyperkalemia aspect when I was in, in general practice um, and I think we're, we're all very very used to um, being taught that okay well if you have a patient that presents blocked and it's bradycardic well it's probably got a high potassium but that completely ignores the fact that actually you could be tachycardic with hyperkalemia or you could have a normal heart rate with hyperkalemia and it's very variable depending on, on the patient and all of those, those tables and this is kind of a, a little rant seminar that I do with the students when they come through rotations and um, they want to talk about it I sort of say look these tables that that say okay between a potassium of four and four and a half or five and five and a half six six and a half etc they're not that applicable to our patients because the way that these tables have been um, constructed is in experimental situations where patients are essentially healthy and they're they're given levels of potassium intravenously to to, to raise their serum potassium and that's just not what happens in, in our patients physiologically. Generally, I, I think it's an MCRIT thing that to, to say that 
when you have one electrolyte derangement, you probably have multiple. And I think that's probably something that goes on with our patients as well. And so I think for me, I don't think we can necessarily say based on this paper that the the average potassium value was lower than than other studies. I just don't think we're necessarily looking for it. And probably a lot of the time we get away with that. But I can imagine that there are a population of patients that die under general anesthesia that just haven't had their their potassium checked. And so you wrote some of the sort of main things that I suppose that the first one, like how surprising in some ways that that without any intervention or the mortality rate of the of the before sort of catheterization was was pretty high. And I suppose like why is that why is that occurring? Is it because they're sick? Is it financially motivated or or something something else? And the high rate of um, of antibiotics that are administered in this in this sort of patient population. What, what do you think? The other and and then I suppose you said that as far as like recurrence, if they're going to recur, uh, a third of them might in the forty eight hours, but not necessarily to be overtly concerned about that because um most of those will will go on and and be fine there thereafter do you think there were other big things to take away from this and and i suppose in answering that what did you what did you want to look at differently what do you think is achievable to look at in big data with mm. say this this can condition so i i think this is something where um i commented last time i spoke about this um during during seminar at work and that i have a huge amount of respect for the vet compass program um and i think the date just the access to the data is phenomenal um but i think for this specific condition it has its own challenges i think when we're trying to answer questions with big data you really want to have specific questions that you're trying to answer um that that data can provide those answers for um and i think my initial questions that i wanted to answer were probably the wrong questions um and i think it's only from going through this paper and pro and the the data collection the analysis after that that i've realized the questions that we can ask for from this big data would i love to know whether prazosin makes a difference in this patient population absolutely because if you talk at like 400 patients versus 250 patients that did have it it would be great to be able to make a more firm comment on that but i think this is such a heterogeneous condition and that there are there are so many different things that can contribute to urethral obstruction. That's why we talk about multimodal environmental modification for the, the non-obstructed FLUTD. Um, that asking a question about a single variable is going to be very difficult because you could ask a question and get an answer that's completely unexpected physiologically. Um, does that answer your question? I suppose, it, I suppose it does. I, I, I suppose maybe we need um, mm. to speak to, to to Dan about this or David Porbert or, or David Church. But I, I thought sometimes like if you're asking <clears throat> some questions with big data that you actually, although, although you might have lots of balls in the air as, as it were, then um, you might be able to, you know, find out that answer particularly as you said you know looking at you know, if close to 400 patients had prazosin and I, I don't know the numbers in the studies but i'm pretty sure they're sort of 30 maximum yeah looking at um whether they were they were given prazosin or, or not and that and you know you're you're already 10 times over that which is amazing right so i suppose it's can we can we use these 
to follow that follow that up i suppose maybe maybe we'll we will see in the in the in the future but i suppose you you i completely get that we have to be cautious in how we interpret that yeah. data whereas i suppose it, it, what what i think is pretty is very impressive from um from this we at least have a picture of what what actually happens and yeah. uh, in in these patient populations are obviously seen in in general practice and is considered a common enough thing um was it one in 200 is that is that yeah around one in 200 cats and i think I, I completely agree. It'd be fascinating to be able to try and make more of this data. And I know Dan was quite keen to write another paper out of it. And I think, unfortunately, just as the residency's progressed on, I've not necessarily had the time to do that. But this data set is there. And so actually, as a little plug, if anyone's interested in looking into it, I'm, I'm sure Dan would appreciate you getting in contact just because it's, it's probably more of a like a, a master's project at this point to, to do that like regression analysis and, and look for risk factors. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's a whole thing that would be quite interesting isn't it and i think where, where big data comes into play is is more to to help um as you know as part of dan's mo um from speaking to him on a, on a different podcast as well but you know wanting to help answer the questions that people have in general practice and i think this is the the you know a stepping stone sort of for for that um rather than you know i don't know the what to give whether neutral insulin and glucose or uh, calcium gluconate and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, you know? So I, so I think that, um, this is, this is really, really interesting, maybe help direct future, future studies as, as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that the other thing is just kind of, I guess it's, it's probably another podcast in itself in terms of how to actually manage these patients. But as a little plug for the paper, the the discussion is quite a nice little guide in terms of how these medications work. So if anyone is listening to this podcast and thinks, oh, I just kind of want to know how how should we potentially be managing these these patients there's more of a discussion in it in the discussion of the paper and it is open access so everyone can get a hold of it well what we'll do is we'll um we'll put a link to it in the in the show notes and and maybe we'll we'll try and work out because you you, uh, alluded to the uh, the talk that you gave in internally and we'll try um with some magic to to link that in the in the show notes show notes as well but we um it might take a little bit of time to 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 do that um dave do you, do you think there's anything that we should speak about that you you looked in the uh, you found from the from the paper that we haven't already covered i think the only thing is that um i think we do have to be careful about how we're talking to clients with this um and I, I think this is certainly something that my viewpoint has changed over the last few years in terms of of, of, of what options I'm giving clients. And obviously, I, I can't necessarily comment on um, the the which of the three factors. So is it a patient factor, a client factor or a vet factor in terms of the euthanasia rates in this study? Um Obviously, it's something that, as I said, can have a high recurrence rate. One in three cats can present. And I know certainly even through us, uh, blocked cats can be a good good thousand pounds through the first opinion service. And not everyone has that money. Um, but I think what I don't want people to take from this paper is that urethral obstruction is associated with a high mortality. Urethral obstruction in this paper 
is associated with a high euthanasia rate. The actual number of patients that died was uh, sort of from natural causes or progression of disease was was quite low. Um, and yes, it could be that we're putting patients to sleep because they're ill, um, or it could be that we're putting patients to sleep because there are cost concerns, or it could be that patients are coming to vets and they say, oh, well, you know, this it's probably going to happen again and uh, uh, they're going to be in for a few days and, and it's probably going to happen again and, and it's going to be expensive. And then that automatically is going to have an impact in terms of client decision making. And that's not to, to say that everyone is doing that. Um, but I know certainly I have done that in the past and I've been a little bit bold in terms of, of my communication with clients. And I think actually sometimes we don't know how these patients are going to do. And so it's just like and the, the example I give and I gave in that talk is if you look at feline aortic thromboembolism, for example, condition that is associated with a very, very high mortality rate in retrospective data. And so then patients get put to sleep with that recommendation and so then the next study that comes up and looks retrospectively is going to have an even higher mortality rate and it's just this negative cycle that kind of carries on and so i guess all i'd be saying for for a take-home perspective is please don't look at this paper and say that oh well they don't do very well so we should probably put them to sleep because i think that's a misinterpretation of the data well i think uh, on that note dave i think maybe we'll um we'll leave it there this thing is a good um good way to to end it so thank you very much for your your time uh, dave thank you for having me and um and thanks everyone for listening and uh, and holding out that there will be another podcast of course there will don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you could leave us a review five-star review on apple Podcasts, that would be great and don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or others and we'll play some show notes in the rvc pages so just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions about this podcast then you can get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye-bye